verse that we did for our responsive reading today. All right, we got it? Praise the Lord, everybody. Um, We're not going to do the traditional uh, Christmas story or Christmas message today. It won't be the traditional one. It will be about Christ coming. It won't be the traditional one, but I I wanted to finish up what we did last week, uh, week before last with John and and the, the first miracle that Christ did. But I was reading how it ties in to what Luke talked about in Luke chapter two. So Luke chapter two, I'm gonna start at verse eight. In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then the angel of the Lord stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the city of David, a savior was born for you who is the Messiah, the Lord. The first declaration that Jesus was here, the first announcement that Christ had come, the Messiah had come, was to the shepherds uh, after he had physically came and was by a multitude of angels. And the message that the angels brought to them when the Messiah came, when God came, today in the city of David, a Savior was born to you who is the Messiah, the Lord. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you, Lord, for your word. Be with us today as we study your word, God. Show us what you have us to know about ourselves. Show us what you would have us to know about you. Be with us, God. We love you. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. And so the angels came. Christ had come. Christ was here. He uh, he had been prophesied that God was going to come and show his face and show up here on earth. And he did. And when he came, the announcement said three things. The Savior is born to you who is Messiah, the Lord. Turning back to John chapter 2. John started off, and we looked at chapter 1, talking about how that Jesus, this person who showed up first as a baby in Bethlehem, that the shepherds heard the news, was here, and that this Jesus was actually God. He was creator. And then John, in an entire first chapter, talks about who he is and his purpose. You look at John chapter 1, verse 29, John said, Talking about John the Baptist, the next day John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So in that again, the announcement that Jesus showed up when he began his ministry, the announcement was he was come, he has come as Savior. When Jesus, we got to John chapter 2. He decided to jump his ministry off. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. He went to a wedding. We talked about why a wedding could have been significant, why he went. But he went there and he performed a miracle, and we know the miracle as water to wine. But when we look at that, we have to understand in context what exactly was going on. Now, remember, John wrote this book for one reason, so that we may believe. He said that. These things are written. Jesus did a whole bunch of other stuff, but these are written so you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. And so the two things John said, I'm writing you, I'm showing you these things so you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. Remember what the angel said? 
For to you this day is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That Christ is an anointed one, the Messiah. And so John said, I'm writing this book and I'm putting these specific things that Jesus did that are going to echo exactly what the angel said when Jesus first showed up. He was God and he was going to be Savior. And so Jesus came and he began his ministry in chapter two with this miracle. So we talked about miracles. I talked a little bit about miracles a while ago. Um, when we talk about miracles, there's a couple of things we have to understand. And I'm going to use a couple of big words, but they're going to be quite easy to understand. When we look at miracles, one thing we have to understand and we have to agree with and believe based on the evidence is that, first of all, God exists. And we always write this here. When we talked about witnessing the people, letting people know about Christ, the first thing that people have to understand is that God exists. And the second thing, God exists and he created the world. And so God exists, and he created the world. Those two things put together with John addressed in chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He said he was God. Then he said all things were made by him, and without him was it anything made that was made. John went first from God exists, that Jesus was God, and that God, Jesus, God, was creator, created God. So he went straight to that. So based on that, because John dealt with that in chapter 1, we have to understand that we are, we live in something called a theistic universe. That's what we live in. We live in a theistic universe. That is a universe or area or place that we live is governed by a God, theos, God. So a theistic universe, it means we are in a universe that was created by God. And so in our theistic universe, based on scriptures, there are things that naturally follow from that. So if a theistic universe is because God exists and God created us. Now, in that, there's some things that are important there. One is that the world or this universe is dependent on God. Universe is dependent on God. We're not out here self-sufficient. The universe, the world that we're living in, isn't carrying its own self along. No, we know that God exists and God created it. And because he did that, God brought the world into existence. And not only did he does that, he also sustains this universe. Sustains. That means he keeps it going. And so... The idea of a theistic universe is that it's dependent on God because God created it, and because it's dependent on him, God sustains it. He keeps it going. We don't have to wake up, oh, my goodness, ah, what time is it? Oh, it's five. I got to get that sun up. Okay, let me go out here and get this sun up. Oh, here's the sun button. Boop, boop. We, don't, we don't do that. Oh, no, what time? I forgot to turn the oxygen on. Everybody's dead. Man, let me go make sure this oxygen is on. We, we don't do that. We are dependent on God to do these things. The universe exists, it functions, trees grow, rain falls, morning, noon, and night, because God sustains it inside our theistic universe. What we need to understand, if God is able to create the world, 
if God is able to sustain the world, then it naturally follows that God is able to act in the world. That means he does stuff. Because we live in a theistic universe that was created by God, it's dependent on God, God sustains it. Because of that, God, in actually follow that God acts, so he does stuff inside the world, this universe that we live in. And so when we understand that, that's when we get into the idea of a miracle. A miracle is when there is a supernatural act of God where God in his supernatural power, because of the fact that he created the world, because he sustains it, he holds it together, because it's dependent on him, God says, I'm going to reach down and act in my world supernaturally. And he does things. We understand that miracles exist because it naturally follows that because God created us, dependent us, sustained us, he acts. And so to someone who has a theistic universe, who believes in the theistic universe, you're not shocked with things that happen. Because we believe that, oh, well, God, <laughs> he's powerful enough because he lives outside of our laws, our rules, that he can come in and act. I'm going to write this down. I'm going to use this to help me because it's a lot. There are five characteristics. This guy named Richard uh, Pirtle noted five characteristics about a miracle. So I'm going to write them down. Five characteristics of a miracle. One, a miracle is an event brought about by the power of God that is temporary I'm sorry that is a temporary exception to the, watch this, ordinary course of nature. I'm going to try to explain this a little bit. For the purpose, it's a long definition. Take a screenshot, a picture of it if you want to. For the purpose of showing that God has acted in history. And you say, wait a minute, you said there were five things. They're in there. So, Richard uh, Prudel's uh, uh, definition of miracle says, a miracle is an event brought about by the power of God. That's the first thing. Miracle is done by the power of God. That is te a temporary exception. To the, here's the main one, the ordinary course of nature. For the purpose of showing that God has acted in history. So we have one, two, three, four, five. That's the purpose. So a miracle is an event brought about by the power of God, number one. That is, that is a temporary exception to the ordinary course of nature 
for the purpose of showing that God has acted in history. Now, this is his definition. I kind of like the definition. Uh, there are many definitions of miracle. But I kind of like this because it got specific with some things. The ordinary course of nature, there are some things that nature normally does. Things grow, they get old, and they die. And the ordinary course of nature is things that die don't all of a sudden come back to life. That's the ordinary course of nature. So when something has an ordinary course of nature, grows, gets killed, and is dead, if there is an exception to that, Temporary ex uh, uh, exception to that, meaning that from here on out, now everything does this, is there is an exception to that brought about by the power of God, and it has a purpose of showing that God acts. So when we as Christians believe that Jesus Christ was dead, he was truly dead, and we believe that in three days he got up from the dead. He truly arose from the dead. Okay? We believe that that's a miracle. Uh, William, what's his name? I was going to say William Craig. Is it William Craig? Yeah, William Lane Craig, thank you. William Lane Craig, one of my favorite apologists, okay? Before he got saved, he said the reason that he didn't get saved, the reason he didn't believe this Bible stuff is because of the virgin birth. He said, I'm a logical man. I know that it takes a man and a woman to have a baby. A woman just don't walk down the street, all of a sudden she's pregnant with a baby, and say, oh, I got a baby, and this baby's Jesus. That's ridiculous. For anybody to believe a virgin birth, that's ridiculous. That's why I will never follow this Christianity stuff because of that. Then William Craig Lane started to study, and as he studied, he began to see that this idea of God, and he looked at God and the existence of God, and he looked at the different arguments for the existence of God, and he understood, he said, wait a minute, okay, if God does exist, that means he exists outside of the ordinary courses of nature, and if he exists, that means that God, it follows that God can act on his creation, because he created it. And William said, if God can act in his creation, then a God in the theistic universe can make a woman have a baby without a man. Because it follows in a theistic universe. That's a miracle. It follows in the theistic universe that Jesus, who died, was raised from the grave. Lazarus, Lazarus, who was dead, God came in and said, Lazarus, get up. That's not ordinary. That's not something that happens all the time. That's an exception to the ordinary course of nature. When those things happen, we call those miracles. And we believe in miracles because we believe in a theistic universe, because we, as Christians, believe that God created the world. So when it comes to this thing of miracles, Jesus shows up, and he shows up at this wedding. We don't know whose wedding it is, but he shows up at this wedding. John chapter 2. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus' disciples were invited to the wedding as well. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told them they don't have any wine. What does that have to do with you and me, woman, Jesus said. My hour has not yet come. Do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. Now, six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them, so they filled them to the brim. Then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the head waiter, and they did. When the head waiter tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. He called the groom and told him, everyone sets out the, wine, the fine wine first. 
Then after people are drunk, the inferior wine. But you have kept the fine wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cain of Galilee. He revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. I told y'all when we first looked at chapter 2 that the whole water to wine miracle when I was younger, it it wasn't really a big deal. It really didn't mean anything to me. One, because, you know, we're not in a, we don't live in a wine-driven culture. In in the Bible days, it was a wine-driven culture. It was wine for breakfast, wine for lunch, wine for dinner. And if it was a party, it was wine everywhere. All right, it was, they used wine to like rinse their mouth out. They used wine if their stomach was hurting, they give them some wine. It was wine on wine on wine on wine. You know, the Bible always talks about vineyards, the vineyard here and the good vineyard and the shepherd and the, not the shepherd, the gardener, the vineyard, because that culture was a wine-driven culture. So me, not being in a wine-driven culture, I used to read this, God turned water to wine. Okay, something you could drink water, you turn it else to something else you could drink wine. Cool. Why he started with that one, I don't know. I mean, he can heal dead, I mean, raise dead people. If I was Jesus, I would have started with that one. If I knew somebody who did, everybody watch this. Bam, now he's alive. Believe in me. But he decided to turn water into wine. So I looked at that, and I said, okay, what's significant about that? I don't want to erase all that, but I'm going to have to. Oh, well. What's significant about water to wine? So I did a little studying about wine because I wanted to know. What was the big deal? You know, water to wine. And so when you look at a couple of things are different. When you look at water, water is what we call inorganic. That means dead. It's not a living organism. When we look at wine, wine is organic. Okay, that, that's interesting. That's different. We have something that was inorganic to something that was organic. We have something that was non-living to something that was living. Okay, right there, it's, it's okay. This is, this is big. It's a big deal. When we look at water, for the chemists in the room, water consists of two hydrogen molecules and one oxygen, H2O. It's one, one compound. Just one compound. Am I right, Jada? All right. That's verification from the resident chemist in the room. So we have water, H2O, one compound. When we look at wine, wine is a combination of more complex compounds. One of them is, of course, it's got the hydrogen, three parts of that, but it has this C thing here that's combined with this thing here. So what we have here, this is carbon. Carbon is the living atom. Anything that's alive, alive has carbon in it. If it's alive, it's got carbon in it. Straight up. You, carbon. All y'all are carbon. This is all carbon. Okay? When you take carbon, you hook it up with the hydrogen uh, and add it to this. And I forgot the exact name of this. What's the OH? I forgot the name of it. Hydroxol? I think it is. I can't remember. Anyway. What happens though, this combination, so water is what he started off with. A couple of jars full of gallons and gallons of this. And he ended up with this. Now not just this, that's the original, uh, just what one of kind of the molecules look like. Water which has one compound, wine has 800 to 1,000 compounds in it. 
and I mean crazy compounds. So water, we know, is colorless. Water is tasteless. Or it should be. Your water tastes like something. Something wrong. Yeah, there's, there's something wrong with that. What happens in wine, wine has four classes or four families of compounds known as phenolic compounds. Okay? Phenolic compound looks something like this. supposed to be five, actually it was six, but it's five of them. All right, that's phenol. And so what happens is these phenolic families have a couple of things. They're called flavor, flavonoids. And so we have, I'm not even going to write them because it's crazy. I'm just going to read them. Inside of this wine, we have anthocyanus as a complex Compound. These complex compounds follow this, this type of formula. I would write them down, but they're just a thousand other things, like seven pages of things that look like that. But the families are the anticyanins. That deals with the coloration in the wine. That's also the same thing that colors fruits and that colors the autumn leaves. When you see the leaves change, that's the anthocyanus phenolic compound. It also has catechins, also known as flavin threols. That's what adds the bitterness to wine. It also adds the bitterness to tea and the bitterness to the dark chocolate. The same type of compound. Then you have the flavonolase. They don't really know exactly what that does, but it's followed up by the tannis, which adds the astringency. Now, I don't know. I never tasted wine. But the astringency is a drying, rough, and mouth-puckering sensation. I don't know. I've never seen anybody do that after drinking wine. I just don't. Uh, Sour Patch Kids, maybe. So maybe that's in Sour Patch Kids. <laughs> All right. Uh, this is red wine, by the way. I, I, I read wine has different colors. So this is the red wine I was looking up. Um, don't know if Jesus turned water into red wine. I'm just looking at the compounds. Anyway, the idea is that water, which is colorless and tasteless, wine has four very complex phenolic flavonoid compounds that are intricate in nature. If I were to try to draw this, this is... Like the basis of this. If I was trying to draw these things, it would take up the entire room. There's actually a post I found on the internet that showed the whole thing. It was insane. As a matter of fact, I'll show you just a little portion of it. It's like C, H3, goes to C, doubles up to O, breaks here, breaks down to O, two of those, one of those. And then you add this and you get the CH3 that goes to C, O, to H. And then that comes to a CH2, C, H, H, O, o H, uh, and this is ethanol, and this is and this is pyruvate. It, it's it's insane. When I look at water, which is just one thing, the wine has, and I'm gonna read the acids and stuff in the wine: ethanol, glycerol, malic, citric acid, succinic acid, tartaric acid, fumaric, acetate, butyric, formic, lactic, proponiac acids. Pyroanthocyanus, catechin, and epicatechin, esters, lac lactones, theols, terpenins, and pyrazines. I probably mispronounced a couple of those. The other thing I want to point out about water is that water, it's there, it exists. You go out, you can find a lake, you can find a uh, Water the beach, 
It exists. But when we talk about wine, here, here's the piece that gets crazy. When it talks about wine, first off, somebody has to have a seed. So you take a seed, and then you have to plant the seed. Once you plant the seed, then you have to wait. Time. Then after time, the seed will grow into a vine. Then after some time after that, on the vine, all of a sudden, these grapes will start to form, and you wait. And you wait till the grapes form, and then they get to the right size they need to be. Then after the grapes grow, you wait, and then you gather all the grapes. Then you gather the grapes, and then you put them in a big thing, and then you crush all the grapes. Then you take all that grape juice and grape stuff in the middle and grape, uh, uh, what's outside of the grape? Skin, thank you. I saw all that's been crushed together, then you strain that. Then you pour that. Then you put it in something, and you sit it somewhere in a cold room and let it ferment. Wine takes time. It's a process. Oh, by the way, that seed that you started off with had to come from another grape, which was... He said, go get those pots over there, fill them up with water, and they turn that water, which was dead, single compound, colorless, tasteless, to this complex thing called wine. He did that in an instant. The miracle shows who he was, that God, that Jesus Christ was Yahweh, the creator God. He also showed Jesus acting in the world where he created. Because he created the world, he could act in this world. So he could take a single compound, colorless, tasteless, substance, water, and command it or create wine from that because he was outside of the ordinary, I already erased it, but the ordinary course of nature. That's not the ordinary course of nature. I don't go down to Lake whatever and then just, we sit here for a minute guys pretty soon we're going to have wine. Everybody just wait. That's not the order. I don't go to the machine and get a bottle of water and just sit there. If we wait a few minutes, it's going to turn to some good, sweet, juicy wine. I don't know. <laughs> Sweet, savory wine. That's not the ordinary course of nature. But Jesus came to this world. He, as God, his first thing he wanted to let you know is, guys, guess what? I create stuff. I created you. And to let you know that I have the power of creation because I created this world, I'm going to act in this world at this wedding, and I'm going to turn this water and create wine. Jesus shows that he rules over the laws of nature because he exists outside the laws of nature. 
He rules over the laws of time. It takes time to get wine. You, I mean, you, you, you see the wine vineyards and people got those things in the barrels and they're waiting and get, it's got to get just right. And, oh, this one's been sitting here for such and such years. I, I, you, you watch movies or whatever, you see people, oh, this is a Chartan Sacrefosse. It's from 1504. Like, what? 200-year-old wine? Like, I don't want to, 200 years? But this stuff takes time. And they say, you know, uh, what's the phrase? Uh, age like fine wine. The longer wine sits, the more finer it becomes, the better it becomes. This stuff takes time. Jesus created it in an instant. Boom. To show the world that, hey, guess who showed up to your wedding? Not just a regular guy, but the creator, Yahweh creator, God has shown up. He exists outside of nature so he can control nature and he rules it. He exists outside of time so he can control time. Why? Because we live in a theistic universe and he can act in that. The question is, have you seen God act? Have you ever had peace when you weren't supposed to? Because God exists, he created the world, we're in a theistic universe, and based on that, God acts in our world. That's the first thing I noticed about the miracle water to wine. The second thing I noticed that was important is that Jesus was making a point that something was coming to an end and that there was a new thing coming. I don't get a lot of times to say, uh, opportunities to say that in my messages. It's a new thing. But that's what Jesus was saying. He said there's an old thing and it was coming to an end, but there's a new thing coming. Look at what happened here. Go back with me to John chapter 2, uh, 6. 2 verse 6. Now, six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. What is that? 
Well, in the Jewish household, uh, uh, before they ate, when they came in the house, especially before they ate, there were certain rituals that they had gone accustomed to doing. One of them was to wash their hands. And it wasn't just to you know, go and get some soap and wash your hands. It was a special way that they would wash their hands, or they called it ceremonial cleaning before they would eat, before they would pray, before they would do different things. Okay? And they used these special jars to do it. So these jars weren't used for water. Pour water in, we're going to drink water. These jars were specially used for the ceremonial cleaning, Jewish purification. What Jesus did was very disrespectful, by the way, to the Jewish laws and to the traditions. Jesus said, oh, go grab those jars and fill them up with water. I'm sure them serving was like, you do know those are the purification jars. Those aren't for play play. Those aren't for pouring water in or nothing. That, that's specifically uh, they, they looked at those things, those are holy things. That's where we go and clean our hands. This is where we go and make sure we are purified before we eat and before we pray, before we do different things. Jesus came along and said, hey, yeah, go grab those things because that stuff is old. I'm about to do something new. And he took that old jars that were used for the old ways and old traditions, and he created new wine in those jars. I believe that that's a testimony of Christ saying, listen, the old wine, the old way you used to do things ran out and Christ the Messiah was here to bring in the new wine. Now, wine wasn't foreign, uh, uh, talking about new things. As a matter of fact, if you look in Luke uh, chapter 5 and John, even John chapter 1 uh, verse 17, when it talks about um, the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so, John was setting up that, hey, there was some old stuff that went on with Moses, but grace and truth is coming through Christ. It's a new thing that's happening. It shows that the old order had run its course, and now it was time for a new order. Jesus commanded those servants to defile those to accomplish his purpose. I believe that he was showing them that he was Jesus, this guy who just showed up, this guy who is about to create in your face. Now, what's interesting about that was none of us was there doing creation. Nobody. Nobody human was there watching. Jesus said, let there be light or, you know, let the sun show up. Or we, we didn't see that. That's why, by the way, creation is not a, uh, uh, creation is a theory when we look at scientific definitions. Creation is a theory because for something to be a law or not something to be true in science, it has to be observed. That's what science means. That means I can observe it. I go in the lab, I make stuff, I see, oh, it blow up. I observed it, that happened. That's a law, that's true. So creation is what science would call a theory because no one was there to see it. By the way, guess what else is a theory? Evolution. Evolution is also a theory because of the fact that no one was there to see it. This thing was supposed to happen, what, a trillion, a trillion, a trillion, billion years ago? Nobody was there to see it. It's interesting that in schools or in the society, they would tell you that, oh, evolution is a fact. Every time they say that, they go against the definition of science. Evolution is a theory. Creation is a theory. Because none of us was there to, to, to observe it according to the observation rules of science. When we look at that, what Jesus was telling them was that my ways are better. I'm bringing in a new thing. Jesus' ways are better than the traditions of man. Jesus' ways are better than our family tradition. Jesus' ways are better than our natural tendencies. Jesus' ways are better than our logic or our tactics or how I'm going to figure this out by doing X, Y, Z. 
Jesus' ways are better than our ideologies, our plans, and our reasons. It reminds me of one of my favorite books, the book of Hebrews, where we look through. Remember the key word to Hebrews was what? Key word to Hebrews. Everything is, this is better. The key to Hebrews was better. Jesus said, you had high priests before, Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews said, but now we have a better high priest. The writer of Hebrews said they were prophets and they prophesied, but now we have a better prophecy. He said you had a lamb that you had to take and you had to kill over and over again, but now we have a better sacrifice. That's the whole book of Hebrews, better, 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 better. And so what Jesus was telling them, I believe, is that, listen, you should use this stuff for ceremonial cleaning, following the traditions of the old. I'm about to take that and put some new wine in it. I'm here to shake things up. I'm here to do something new. Now the focus is to be turned towards me. Why? Because I'm creator God. As a matter of fact, you didn't get to see the first time I created, but now you saw this when I created, took water, and I created wine. Christ was saying, I'm here. Those old traditions, they were important and purposeful, but they pointed to me. I'm the better. And lastly, the third and final thing about the water to wine was it revealed God's glory. Look at verse 11, John 2, 11. Jesus did this. Why did he do this? The first of his signs in Cana of Galilee to reveal, he revealed his glory. Jesus did this to reveal his glory. That word glory there is doxa in the Greek. It means a lot of things. One of it is magnificent. Jesus did this to show that he was magnificent. I'm the magnificent. Nobody? Special ed? Magnificent? No? Okay. Look it up. Psalms 8, 1. Quickly. We're going to do some speed reading. Psalms 8, 1. While you're turning there, put your finger there and put your other finger in Hebrews 1.4. Psalms 8.1. John wrote this and he said, Jesus did this. He did this miracle. He created something in front of these people in order to show them his glory. What is his glory? To show him his magnificence. Psalms chapter 8, verse 1. That word says, Lord, oh Lord, how magnificent is your name in all the earth. You have covered the heavens with your majesty. Not only does glory was magnificent and Jesus was showing that he, as the God of the Old Testament, was magnificent. He also wants to show his excellence. Turn to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 4. Mm. I got to start with one. Long ago, God spoke to the fathers about the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made, that made the universe, I'm sorry, and made the universe through him. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature, sustaining, there's that word, theistic universe, God sustains it, sustaining Christ, sustaining all things that are made, I'm sorry, sustaining all things and made the universe through him. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, 
excuse me, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So he became, watch this, superior to the angels, just as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. Jesus turned water to wine. He created this in front of the people to show that he not only was magnificent, but he was excellent. Turn to 1 Samuel 15, 29. That's Old Testament. 1 Samuel, right before 2 Samuel. 1 Samuel 15, 29, and while you're going there with your other hand, turn to the book of Job, chapter 40. So first, we in, first we're going to look at 1 Samuel. In 1 Samuel 15, verse 29, is that right? Verse 28, Samuel said, the Lord has torn the kingship of Israel away from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Furthermore, the eternal one, the eternal one of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not man who changes his mind. That word eternal one can also be translated preeminent. God, Jesus was showing, look, I'm magnificent, same word. I'm excellent, same word for glory. I'm preeminent. I am the eternal one. That means surpassing all others. And then in Job 40, verse 10, another word for glory. What does glory mean? It means dignity. Job 40, verse 10 says that adorn yourself with majesty and splendor and clothe yourself with honor and glory. Another translation says adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Dignity means worthy of honor and worthy of respect. And lastly, glory means grace. And we looked at grace was the powerful, faithful, promise-keeping love of God. Back in John chapter 2, Jesus did this, the writer said, to show his glory. He's magnificent. That means he's extravagantly spectacular. He's excellent, meaning he's outstanding and of the highest quality. He's preeminent. That means he surpassed all others. He has dignity, means he's worthy of honor and respect, and he's full of grace, meaning he's powerful, faithful, promise-keeping love of God. I like that word. Jesus did this to show who he was. It's interesting, that same word for glory, uh, uh, one of the words the glory means is dignity. Turn real quick to 1 Timothy 2. In 1 Timothy chapter 2. Right before 2 Timothy. After 2 Thessalonians. 1 Timothy 2, we're talking about the word dignity, which means worthy of honor and worthy of respect. First Timothy chapter two, verse one says, first of all, then I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and for all those who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and it pleases God, our savior, who wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. God tells us, Paul tells us here in first Timothy that we, not only does God exhibit dignity, we also should exhibit dignity. That means that we should live a life that's worthy of respect, that we should live such as worthy of honor. That word there means respect, especially due to wisdom or especially due to character. 
our character should be as the character of Christ. God showed his character when he turned water to wine, when he created something. He showed that he was magnificent, excellence, preeminent, dignity, full of grace. John said, I wrote these in order for you to believe that Jesus was Yahweh, creator God, and Messiah. What God does is, what Jesus does is he takes things that are originally dead, that are simple, that are colorless, that are tasteless, that are flavorless. He takes those as individuals and he creates a new, living, complex, multifaceted masterpieces bursting with the Holy Spirit fruit flavors. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. What Christ did to this water by turning to wine is the same thing he came to do for you and for I, to transform us from dead to life, to give us our, from our colorless, tasteless, to the fruit of the Spirit. And now I live with that sweet-tasting fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, long-suffering. That's what I do now. Why? Because I'm a new person. Also, I have an advocate who can turn water to wine. He can take a couple of molecules of hydrogen and oxygen and make this incredible complex thing. And as I see him do that, I know that he can also act in my world. So when I go through hard times, when I go through situations that don't seem right, that don't act right, when I'm hurting, when I'm in pain, when I'm stressed, when I can't figure something out, I remember I have an advocate. I have someone who's standing there with me. I have someone who's going to God the Father for me. And that someone is not just a regular old person. That's someone who can turn water to wine. Someone who can create something from nothing. He's Yahweh God. He rules outside of his creation. So he rules over the laws of nature. So when my body isn't operating or acting right, I can know I can go to Christ. Why? Because he acts outside. And so that ordinary course of nature, he can step in and adjust that. I have victory over death, resurrection. Christ came, he died, he rose again. That's the main point of our Christian message. And we believe that. Why? Because he got victory over death. And so when our friends die or someone we know dies, we don't have to be worried or stressed out. Why? Because we serve a God who exists outside of death, and he has already gained victory to that. So the water to wine as a miracle was something more than just he took something that was a drink and created something else that was just another drink. God did this to show his glory, to let us know who he was, Yahweh created God. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray, God, that as we move forward, uh, looking through the book of John, that we will recognize what you were doing in each one of these instances, God. We thank you, God, for showing us who you are, God. We thank you, God, for not creating us, just leaving us hanging, but actually acting in the world that we live in. We pray, God, that uh, we would not be people who understand this and just believe it and keep it to ourselves, but that we will go and tell others. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.